Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This is Pardes from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kuger, a Pardes alum. This week, Pinchas. This week's podcast is sponsored in memory of Anne Kopit Rubin on the occasion of her yard site, the 8th of Tammuz, by her loving family, Leora, Jonah, Elan, Sarah, and Albert Carroll. Thank you very much for sponsoring the podcast. This week, Pinchas with Rabbi Mike Foyer. Rabbi Mike Foyer is a member of the Pardes faculty. And now, Rabbi Mike Foyer. I know we're here to talk about Parshat Pinchas, but before we do, I've just got to look a little bit backwards to last week, because Parshat Balak is the definition of a cliffhanger. You remember how it ended? Tens of thousands of people dying throughout the camp. Spiritual revolt is riling the masses. Here's the young unknown. He stands up from among the crowd to stay the tide of rebellion, grabs a spear, runs the leaders through in flagrante delicto, as they say, and he is a hero, villain, savior, murderer. Not so clear. And before we answer the question which is really what I want to do today in Parshat Pinchas, it's worth pausing for just a moment to reflect on the power of a storyteller. Because, you know, there's no greater power in shaping a story than where to start and stop. In fact, I would go so far as to say that you actually know a storyteller by where they choose to begin and end their tale. You may know that I actually have a podcast elsewhere called The Jewish Story, And I chose to start with the book of Daniel. Where history is going to end, we'll wait to see. But that can tell you a little bit about what I think history is. And so in the way in which the weekly parashiot are broken up, we see one of the most powerful tools of storytelling that our tradition knows. Now, it's true that the annual cycle that we read is the product of Babylon. While the land of Israel used to base its tradition on a triannual cycle, a cycle that was somewhat revived by the conservative movement in our era. But at this point, even within the conservative movement's triennial cycle, it's universally accepted today that Parshat Balak ended with a spiritual rebellion which evokes a devastating plague and is checked by a tremendously violent act, right? But the Parsha actually doesn't tell us last week whether Pinchas is a hero or a villain. That has to wait for the beginning of this week's Parsha. Now, you might tell me, everybody knows Pinchas is the hero. We've all read this before. Or even, come on, it's so biblical. How could he not be the hero? He's zealous for the sake of the Lord. I hear it. But there's no denying that the sages chose to put a break between the deed and the judgment that follows it. And I believe that's because they were using their power. In fact, in my eyes, one of the most profound places that the oral law affects the written law is where we begin and end our weekly readings. And they were using that power because they wanted us to reflect for an entire week before we're too quick to get all triumphalists about the downfall of the wicked. Now, before you think that I'm just kind of fudging it, There's more to this than my musings as a storyteller. Let's look at the verses in question for a minute. It says there in Bamidbar 25, 10, 13, and I encourage you to take a look at the source sheet that comes along with this podcast. It says, The Lord spoke to Moshe, saying, Pinchas ben Elazar, the son of Elazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the Israelites by displaying amongst them his passion for me. Right? The the Hebrew is, Bikano ekinati betocham. 
right? And we're going to have to talk perhaps a little bit about what this kinat is. I didn't wipe him out in my zealotry. And that's why I'll say, Behold, I give him my covenant of peace. Now that is very strange. Even if you have no qualms about Pinchas' action, even if you think that he's the greatest hero in Jewish history, I don't think that a covenant of peace would be my first choice for his reward. A covenant of the priesthood, which he indeed gets in the next line, a covenant of blood, something, not a covenant of peace. We don't often associate peace with the murder of two people, innocent or guilty. But of course, this is no accident. And it, relates, and it relates very deeply, in my eyes, to the sage's decision to give us time to pause between last week and this week and reflect between the narrative presentation of Pinchas' act and God's judgment upon it. So first, let's get one thing out of the way. This is not a case of the ends justifying the means, right? The idea of what's called kanaim poginbo, that a zealot indeed has not only the right, but perhaps the obligation to kill people in this situation, right? because there are certain sins which are so corrosive to the social fabric that a zealot is allowed to take vigilante action. That idea actually makes it into the later halachic codes. It's part of our legal discourse. There's no need to go into the details, but if you take a look on the source sheet, you'll see the selection from Choshen Mishpat, the section of the Shulchan Aruch, the great legal compilation of Jewish codes, and you'll note that it's the case of Pinchas which is actually being treated. It says, one who engages in sexual intercourse with an idolater in public in view of 10 Jews, which is essentially what's happening at last week's Parsha, a zealot is permitted to kill him. And it goes on and adds some details, but there at the end it says, in addition, the zealot must act on his own recognizance, but if he asks the religious court for permission, they may not instruct him to do so. That's a very strange observation. If this were just a case of harsh acts demand harsh measures, and therefore the ends of maintaining the social fabric justify the means of vigilantism, then certainly the court would be empowered to tell him, yeah, this is what you need to do. But here we see it's only the zealot who can solve the problem. It's only someone who is so consumed. Notice the verses again. It says, Right, that he felt God's zealotry. Right, this is a level of divine identification which is quite rare in the world. So it's only someone who feels that sense of zealotry who can solve the problem. Therefore, we just dismiss this idea that the ends justifying the means. There's something much deeper happening here. In order to understand what it is and how the killing that Pinchas committed could only happen as an act of zealotry, we need to look a little closer at his covenant. And I mean that literally. You know, the Masoretic text is a fascinating thing. That's the academic name, or it's really just an anglicized version of the traditional name, for the traditional text, the Torah text which has been so zealously guarded and copied down through the years. If you've never gotten a chance to open up a Sefer Torah, the actual scroll of the Torah, and take a look at it up close, now is the time. Because there's messages in every single letter. And I don't just mean that in some sort of mystic, Kabbalistic sense. I mean, look physically at the words. And when you look closely at that Brit Shalom, that covenant of peace, which Pinchas is given, you'll see that the Vav in the middle of the word Shalom is broken. It's called a Vav Ketiah. And if you want to see what it looks like, I actually put a picture of it on the source sheet, so take, take a glance there. But it's the only Vav in the entire Tanakh 
in the entire Hebrew Bible that's written broken. It's the top of the vav with a little space and a vertical dash beneath it. What could it possibly mean that the letter at the heart of this covenant piece is broken? Now, on one level, I think that the answer is obvious. No matter what Pinchas did, if it was right or wrong, no matter that we actually might say that if Pinchas hadn't killed Cosby and Zimri, then idolatry might have consumed Am Yisrael right there and then. You and I wouldn't even be having this conversation. He still killed two people, one of them a leader in Israel, and there's nothing essentially good about that. You know, in fact, it seems to me that this story is not about harsh times that demand harsh measures. It's about a broken world producing broken solutions. And if you want to pursue the depth of the loss of what it was to lose a leader in Israel like that, I'm not going to do it right now, but take a look at the piece from the Meishiloch, the Ishbitzer Rebbe, Hasidic master, that I put at the end of the source sheet. It's kind of a, a bonus source, and it'll take you quite a bit further along that path. But for now, I want to consider how this was an act of breaking, which somehow made things whole. What do I mean by making things whole? Well, the word for whole in Hebrew is, of course, shalim, shin, lamed, mem, which is what you get when you break the vav and you take it out of shalom. And that's not just wordplay. The Gemara in Kiddushin, there again on the source sheet in 66b, says the following. It says that a, um, a Kohen who has one of the blemishes that the Torah listed that invalidates him from service is indeed invalid. But how do we know that? Rabbi Huda says that Shmuel taught it as the following. Well, the verse says, That's our verse, right? Behold, I give him my covenant of peace. Don't forget that the next line then says that Pinchas is granted a, a covenant of the priesthood forever. But then the Gemara knows, Kishahu Shalem, right? He has this covenant when he's whole, but not when he is chaser, when he's lacking. I says the Gemara, but the word is written Shalom, not Shalem. And Rav Nachman says, but the letter Vav in the word Shalom is broken. It's cut off. It's Ketiyah. So what it's telling us is that somehow the service of the Kohen is bound up with this tension between the word Shalem, which he himself must be, and the idea of Shalom. So let's go back to this idea of zealotry and how the strange notion, even in the halachic legal discourse, that only a zealot could take such an action. Only someone who is completely whole in their divine identification could possibly take an action which is going to involve breaking of a local event, murder, in order to restore wholeness to a divine event, this idea that we should be worshiping God and not idols. So that's one half of this story. But what happens when you take the vav out of shalom? So it's an interesting thing because Pinchas on some level ceased to be human in, in that moment. He was now what we might call a robot. He was an agent of God, but not a free agent. Someone who was so totally identified with God that he lost his selfhood, which is why if he had gone to the Beit Din, according to the legal discussion, gone to the court and asked, may I do this? The court's going to say, of course not. A human being can't do that. You bring the guy to court. You make your proper accusations. We'll have a trial. We'll see if indeed he did the act, if there were extenuating circumstances. That's called life. But if you want to destroy another life in that moment, only God does that. Only God or someone who's totally identified with God, which is actually inhuman. Now, what is the letter Vav? The letter Vav, which if you stick it into this shalem, this 
total state of identification and zealotry with God becomes shalom. The letter of vav is a letter of connection. As a prefix, it means and, and in many places you'll see that the letter of vav means connection. And it comes to teach us this in our context. Nothing in this world is actually shalem. Nothing in this world is whole, at least nothing alive. I mean, if you know anything about science, you know that all life is an open system. Things flow through. Life lives in relationship. We take things in, we pass things out, and if you ever want to have more generations, you certainly have to make a connection with someone. So nothing in this world is whole, nothing alive. And if you want relationship, then you aren't looking for shalem, for wholeness. You're actually looking for shalom, the place where those two pieces can be brought together. And that's actually what brings us to a very interesting end to this tale. Because the Baal Haturim, right, the author of the tour, the Arbitorium, great, um, let's think about it, 14th century work of the Halakhic Discourse, foundational, also has a commentary on the Torah. It's called the Baal Haturim, not surprisingly. And there his comment on our verse in, in Bamidbar 25.12. He engages, his, in general, he's interested in the details of the text down to the numbers of letters and their meaning, etc. And he notices, of course, that this is the only broken vav in the entire Torah, entire, actual entire Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. And he says, here's another explanation for why. He says it's a cut-off letter vav because Pinchas is Eliyahu. This is something which is attributed to the Zohar. You see it in other places that there's an identification between one zealot and another, right? I'm not going to go into the whole Eliyahu story, but I'll make a shameless plug that if you want to understand the depths of zealotry and the role that it plays in Elijah or Eliyahu's development and the morally complex and theologically somewhat confusing aspects of it, you can take a look at the second book of my Age of Prophecy series. If you don't know what I'm talking about, the great biblical fiction narrative that I'm in the midst of writing, you can send me an email here at my Pardes email at mikefpardes.org.il and I'll shoot you back an email. But in the meantime, in the rabbinic mind, Pinchas is the same as Eliyahu. Both of them are the great zealots for the Lord. You know, they both fight a battle, destroy the enemy. In the end of the day, though, idolatry doesn't go away. And that's the important thing to note. Pinchas may stay God's hand in this moment. And Am Yisrael does indeed pass into the land of Israel, but we all know that the first temple is destroyed, and one of the primary reasons for which it was destroyed was idolatry. So Pinchas's act of zealotry was locally effective, but in the long term did not work. In the same way Eliyahu, many generations later, will fight a local battle against idolatry and manage, you can take a look in the 18th chapter of the first book of Kings, if you don't know the story, he manages to defeat the Baal. But in the end of the day, he wakes up in the morning, idolatry isn't gone, and he has to actually flee for his life. And so, the Baalatorium says that, that Pinchas is Eliyahu. And then he points out to us that Eliyahu's name is actually written as Eliyah, lacking that final vav six times in the Hebrew Bible. Okay. And Yaakov's name is written with a vav. It's usually written yud, ayin, kuf, bet. But there are six places where it's written yud, ayin, kuf, vav, bet. Six times. Good. There are six missing vavs from Eliyahu's name, and there are six extra vavs in Yaakov's throughout the text. And the Baltrum goes on to say that that's because Yaakov took a vav from Eliyahu. Why? It's collateral against the day that he's supposed to come and announce the Messiah and redeem his children. Because in our tradition, starting from the end of the prophet Malachi, Elijah is the one who comes to announce the arrival of the Messiah. And so therefore, Yaakov basically took that vav 
And he said, I'm going to hold on to this, Elijah, until you finally do your job. But of course, Elijah is not the one who's holding back the Messiah. And so he goes on, he says, this is what the verse means, that Yagel Yaakov Yismach Yisrael, that Jacob will exult, Israel will rejoice. And he points out the word rejoice, Yismach, has the same letters as the word Messiah, because we will rejoice in the days of the Messiah and return that vav, making Eliyahu whole. So let's just think about this for a second and we'll wrap it up here. Here's our Pinchas, who does this tremendously violent act, an act of zealotry through his absolute identification with God, creating local brokenness, restoring the relationship between God and Am Yisrael. But in the long run, it doesn't work. And so you scroll forward many generations and you have Elijah fighting the exact same battle. And he does the same thing through his absolute identification and his zealous zealotry for the Lord. He wins a local battle, but in the long run, it doesn't work. And so says the Balaturim, he has to hand over his vav. He has to hand over that connecting letter, which was broken through Pinchas' act. And it's going to be held onto by Am Yisrael. And who knows more about the importance of shalom than Am Yisrael, than the Jews wandering through the world trying to make connection wherever we go and hoping that we can just bring a little bit more peace and yet suffering tremendously from the lack of it. And so we're holding on to that vav in the hope that we can finally live in a world where it's not about the ends justifying the means. It's about fixing the world to the point where our solutions to its brokenness aren't themselves broken as well. And then we'll be able to hand over that vav back to Eliyahu. We'll be able to make zealotry, the absolute identification with God, a tool for bringing peace to the world and not just breaking in order to make it a little more whole. And that's my blessing for us all Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Rabbi Foyer. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Pardes from Jerusalem.